Well, good morning. Uh, this was not the message uh, presentation time or format that we originally had planned earlier this week. I recorded uh, my message as part of our typical schedule. But as many of you are aware, there were some unprecedented events that happened. And so after some prayer and some reflection and seeking some counsel, I took the opportunity to come back in and re-record uh, some comments and uh, re-deliver the message that I had prepared today. Uh, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody who's had any awareness that there were some incredible events that happened this week in our nation's capital. Uh, it was incredibly difficult to watch uh, as that place was stormed and attacked um, in acts of violence, and um, it is a traumatic time for anyone who calls themselves an American. And so I wanted to speak to you at the beginning of this message to share some encouragement with you and lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, we called a prayer meeting earlier this week, and uh, if you want to watch that video, it's on our YouTube channel. We recorded that uh, as part of a live broadcast on Wednesday evening. But uh, I, I want us to pray in a little bit for peace and unity, both in our hearts and in our church and in our country. But before I do that, I, I want to make really clear that, that what happened this week is not okay. Uh, what, what happened in our nation's capital does not at all reflect our faith and our Lord and Savior Jesus. And the reason why I need to say that is that the very first thing that I saw in terms of a symbol that came into uh, our nation's uh, capital, the, the Senate and the House chambers, places that I've been uh, and visited myself, was a Christian flag. Uh, outside of the Capitol, as people attacked that building, a cross was erected. And there was a Jesus Saves banner that was displayed as part of that moment. And what we find when we open up the scriptures is that Jesus did not advance his kingdom through those kinds of methods. In fact, when his apostle Peter pulled out his sword, when Jesus was being arrested, Jesus said, put away that sword, because if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Jesus called us to be peacemakers. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And that's our calling right now. Calling is not to be a part of a rebellion or an insurrection or violence. Our calling is to be people who advance the kingdom of God using the methods that he used. And so today I'm heartbroken that so many in our country are associating our faith with that. And I just wanted to make really clear that that connection isn't genuine and true. I also wanted to spend some time leading us in prayer because I know for many of us, we're afraid, we're grieving, we're heartbroken. And I think it's important to pay attention to those things and to take those things to Jesus. So if you don't mind, I want us to take some time and pray this morning. And then we'll dive into the message together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you invite us to come to you with all of the emotions that the heart you designed can hold. Today, we feel grief and sadness over what we've watched and the state of uh, hearts and lives in our country. And so we, we pour out our grief and our, our sadness to you. We pray that in the places where there is fear, uh, that you would fill hearts with, with courage and faith. 
We pray that in those places where we're unsettled, that we would wrestle through that with you and that you would guide us and direct our thoughts. We we pray that uh, in the places where decisions are made, that you would guide leaders with wisdom, understanding, courage, and a heart for truth. We pray that the truth would continue to be revealed, that the truth would continue uh, to reign. And uh, we pray that truth would be valued uh, because you said that you are the truth, you are the way, and you are the life. And, and we want that because we want you. We pray that you uh, would bring uh, to uh, account all who carried out uh, these acts. We pray for the families of those who lost loved ones in, in this tragic, tragic event. And we pray for those that are responsible for restoring order. We pray that you would protect them and guide them and be with their families as they're worried and concerned about them. We also pray for those who, who watched and made a connection between what was happening and you. And we pray for the stumbling block that, that was created because of that. You said, Jesus, that, that your message was a message of foolishness. Uh, and so it's, it's tough to embrace your message and your truth anyway, just on its face. But so often uh, through the imperfect actions of people, through their sin and their mistakes, stumbling blocks are added. And so we just pray for the people who you came and gave your life for, that, that those stumbling blocks would one day be removed and that those who don't know you would come to know you, your love, your peace, your forgiveness, and your grace. We pray that you would guide us. And we pray that this series that we're in would be used to to reveal what's in our heart that doesn't honor you and that you would do work in our hearts even as you're doing work in hearts across our country. And we pray that you would have your way in us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, I didn't plan uh, this series to tie into these events, but last week when we started this series, How's Your Heart? We introduced this idea that what comes out of the heart, what comes out of a person comes out of their heart. We shared that that what what comes out is actually a reflection and not an exception. And there are many times and there are many places where where stuff comes out of us and we go, oh, that that, that wasn't me, or I don't know what happened, or I don't know what came over me, but that, that wasn't me. What we saw this week in our nation's capital, it was a reflection of what was truly in the hearts of people and the true state of things. That was us. That, that was our country. That's where things actually are. And in many moments in the past year, we've all seen things come out of us that are a reflection of where we truly are. And I believe that this moment is a, it's an alarm. In the same way that an alarm goes off in the morning, it's a wake-up call. It's an opportunity for us to reflect and see. And I I believe this moment is an alarm that's calling us to pay attention to what's truly happening in hearts. I hope this week that you took the opportunity to step back and to reflect and ask that question of yourself that we encouraged you last Sunday, which feels so long ago. How's your heart? What's going on in your heart? And yeah, it's really easy to get consumed what's happening in other people's hearts and other people's lives. But I want us to take today to look and examine our own hearts. To ask ourselves the question, how's your heart? 
And in this series that we introduced last week, we're going to dive into four particular emotions, four emotions that, that cause tremendous problems that, that if unexamined and unresolved could hold us back from all that God has for us. And that, those four things are this, guilt, which is this week's, anger, greed, and jealousy. And I think we've seen in some ways these four things in the last even few days. And we've seen the consequences of when those things go on in our hearts and they're not resolved and they're not dealt with. So if you're taking notes today, here's what I'd encourage you to begin with this big idea that guilt is an alarm that goes off in our hearts, calling us to repentance. In the same way that many of us have an alarm that goes off next to our bed each morning that wakes us up, guilt is that alarm in our heart that God uses to call us to repent, to call us to change, to call us to address something that is not okay and cannot continue. The the problem is, is that for so many of us, our relationship to our physical alarm clock is the same relationship that we have to the alarm of guilt going off in our hearts. And unresolved guilt is like a snoozed alarm going off inside of us. And and when you snooze the alarm and put it off, in the same way, it's like when you have guilt in your heart and you put off dealing with it, hoping that it will be easier to deal with later on in the future. And that's why I think what has happened in our country in this moment is something we have to face and we have to deal with because hitting the snooze on it, not dealing with it, is only going to prolong and make it more and more difficult. So today we're going to dive into the scriptures and look at the story of a man who should have felt tremendous guilt. He may have. We we don't actually know what's going on inside his hearts, but we see what happens when he finally decides to stop snoozing the alarm and deal with the alarm that was going off inside of him. His story is told in the book of Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 19. And there's some of you who who grew up in church, you've been around church and the Bible for some time, and and that can be a great asset to your spiritual growth and maturity. It can also be a huge danger because sometimes you end up in a passage you think you know well, you hear a name that you feel like you've already learned enough about, and what that means is that you have a barrier to actually experiencing God speak in that moment and that place, and this is one of those times. Because Luke 19 tells the story of a man named, well, I'll just, I'll read it and let you figure it out. And I will encourage you, if you go, oh, I've heard this before, don't check out. I think we all need to hear his story again today. So beginning in Luke 19, this is what we read. He entered Jericho, and he is Jesus in this instance, and he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. 
But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and everything I've extorted from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I told you that I think the temptation with a story like Zacchaeus is to go, I've heard that name before. I've heard his story before. It wasn't it that guy who did that. Okay, move on. But I would encourage you to, to keep your heart and your mind open for what God has to say to you and us in this moment. Because I believe that there are five mistakes that we make with our guilt alarms, with, with that, that reminder that there is something in our heart that we need to deal with. I think there's five mistakes that we make, and I, I want to go through all of these. You, you may not relate to all of them, but I think you'll probably relate to at least one of them. Here's the first one. The first mistake we make is that we misunderstand confession and repentance. And those are big, they're long words just in terms of letters, but they're big words in terms of meaning. And when we misunderstand those words, it makes it hard for us to understand what God is doing in a story like Zacchaeus's. You see, according to the English dictionary, our understanding kind of culturally of confession is that to confess something is to admit or acknowledge it. It's just simply to, to acknowledge that it's true. It doesn't take a whole lot to confess in this way. It just means you're, you're facing the truth of what happened. But in scripture, when we see somebody confess something, it's a much larger and broader meaning. In scripture, to confess means to change. It, when, when, when the word confession is used, it's often associated and includes words like repentance, restitution, and restoration. It's a much bigger concept. It, it goes far beyond just saying, yep, I acknowledge that, I admit that. It means that you begin to deal with it and the consequences of it, and you change in light of it. And that's why repentance is a word that's often connected to confession. Because when you confess and repent of something, you're not just making an apology. You're making amends. When, when, when somebody repents of something, they're not just confessing it and going, ah, oh, you know what, I did that, yeah. It, it means that you're actually making amends. You're dealing with the consequences of what happens you're making amends for it and you're turning in a different direction. And so when, when the alarm of guilt goes off in us, it's not enough to go, you know what? I did that. Sorry. <laughs> no big deal. Hey, that happened. It means that we have to reckon and deal with what happened. It'd be so easy for, for me to just play the sermon that I recorded earlier this week. But I think it's important for us to recognize in light of what's happened and what's happening around us, that there are things that we have to deal with. We can't just admit that, it, yeah, that happened. We saw it all happen, but let's reckon with it and deal with it and look and say, hey, is any of that in me? Is any of that reflected in, in people that, that, that I rub shoulders with, that I'm friends with? And that's why confession and repentance are so important to truly understand, to truly deal with. We, we have to just not admit it. We've got to move on and deal with why, and we have to let God bring change through it. So when the, the alarm of guilt goes on in your heart, it's not enough to just acknowledge it. God wants to do so much more than that. Number two, the mistake we make is that we misassume that following Jesus involves passivity. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, it doesn't just mean that from the moment you give your life to him, that you just sit back, relax, and let him do the rest. No, following Jesus is an active thing. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, my dear friends, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. See, see, following Jesus is this kind of dual thing that happens where we are working out and putting into action the things that God says is true about us and what he wants to accomplish through us. We're taking action based upon it. We're working it out. We're, we're using our muscles. We're exercising this new identity, this new responsibility. And at the same time, God is at work in us according to his purposes for us. We're joined together in this process. So when, when guilt comes in our hearts and stuff that's alarm, hey, there's something you got to deal with. What that means is we don't just sit back and go, okay, Jesus, come and do your thing. No, what it means is that we actively respond to it. Even as God is doing his work in us, he wants to collaborate with us in that work. He doesn't want us just to sit back passively and give him the work to do all himself. And this is why in this series, we're reminding each other of the value of spiritual disciplines. See, spiritual disciplines are those things that we do that enable us to collaborate with the work that Jesus wants to do in us. I love how Dallas Willard defines those. He says, a discipline, he's speaking of spiritual disciplines, is an activity within our power that enables us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort. So when we engage a discipline like last week, the prayer of examine, and we're reflecting with God on our days what we're doing, is we're doing what we can, reflecting, to accomplish what we can't by direct effort. God's showing us and revealing to us what we would have been blind to if we just went through our days. We're doing something over here that God will allow and use to accomplish something bigger and larger. So when you pray or when you read scripture or when you take communion or when you gather with your community group or, or when you fast or when you confess your sin, or when you're generous, or, 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 or when you practice silence and solitude, whatever discipline it is that you engage, what you're doing is you're doing what is in your power to do, while you're trusting God to do what is not in your power to do. And that's why it's so important that we realize that following Jesus is an active thing. It isn't a passive thing. So when, when, when that feeling of guilt comes God is calling us to actively respond. Now let's get into the story of Zacchaeus here. The third mistake that we make is that we misjudge, sorry, we misinterpret Zacchaeus in a story and we misjudge God's kindness. We misinterpret Zacchaeus. Let's dive back into a story. So Zacchaeus is this, this chief tax collector. He's rich. He hears that Jesus is coming. He climbs up in a tree so he can see Jesus and get above the crowds. And then and this is what it says happens next. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain saying he's gone to stay with a sinful man. 
Now, what you've got to recognize about Zacchaeus is that he was a wicked, evil person. He was carrying out things that were terrible to do. He was a tax collector. What that means is that he worked for the Romans who were occupying the area that Jesus lived in as a foreign government, oppressing the people. And Zacchaeus went to work for them, which is a traitorous act for his people, to collect taxes for them, which is a terrible thing for anybody to do. It's a traitorous thing to do. But the way that tax collectors made their money was that they took a little bit extra on top of what the taxes were to line their own pockets. And so when it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, what that means is that he had other tax collectors working underneath him. Think of like a multi-level marketing thing. He's making money off of the people who are making money off of the people at large. And it says that he was rich. He was wealthy because he'd stolen his money from people through terrible means. So when Jesus comes and says, I want to have a meal with you, I want to step into your home, which is an act of honor. The people are incensed. Because in their mind, tax collectors, they're evil. In Luke 15, 1, it says all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. I mean, it's like a sinner and a tax collector. It's like an extra big sinner. Other places, it's tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Like, that's the the category that Zacchaeus was in. Not one that anybody wanted to be in. And so why on earth would Jesus go to him? And this is so important for you if you grew up in the church, because you probably grew up singing a song. And the song went like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. We've presented Zacchaeus as this cute little guy cuddly, you know, and he's not. Whether he was, you know, short by our standards or short by their standards, at the end of the day, what we know was his character, evil, wicked, wrong. And yet Jesus comes and he he wants to have a meal with him. And it's so important for us to recognize that, that what Jesus does is he extends kindness to Zacchaeus even in the midst of his wickedness and evil. See, the message that many of us have have embraced, sometimes in the church and sometimes for other reasons, is that what, what God wants is for you to clean up your act, get it together, and then come to him. We think that we have to be perfect to be loved by God. We have to put on this, this, this act and this show that shows how great we are. When in actuality, this, this is just being fake. This is, this is putting on an act and a show that, that does not reflect what's truly in our hearts. We think, well, if I get my act together, then God will love me. And yet what we see in Scripture through the story of Zacchaeus is that it's actually the guilty that God moves towards and he shows grace towards. Now, this is so antithetical to our world. We think the people who deserve grace are those who deserve it. The people who should receive kindness are the kind. And yet what Jesus does is scandalous. It reflects the words of Romans 2.4 where the Apostle Paul says, Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. See, we misunderstand God's kindness. We think God is kind to us if we repent, when in actuality, it is God's kindness that precedes our repentance. 
So when we begin to pay attention to that alarm going off within us, what we need to recognize is that God has already showed us kindness and he's extending his kindness as a way to motivate us to turn and repent. It's a scandalous thing. It's a surprising thing. It is counter to the way our world lives and goes, and yet it's the way of Jesus. Number four mistake, we mistakenly relieve our guilt rather than resolving it. All of us love the feeling of making a bad feeling go away. None of us enjoy being in pain and angst and agony. We have all sorts of things that we use to, to push those feelings away. But when that feeling is guilt, not resolving it and trying to relieve it has terrible consequences. If you feel guilt in your life and you're continually pushing it away and not dealing with it, here's what's going to happen. Unresolved guilt becomes shame. It moves from, you know what, I did something wrong, I did something bad, to I am bad. It shifts from being an activity to an identity. And as a pastor, what I've seen more than anything else is that secrets and shames destroy lives. When things are kept secret and not dealt with, and when shame becomes dominant in a person's life, in a marriage, in a family, in a culture, in a church, nothing good comes from that. That's why it's so dangerous that we, conf- that we, res- that we, we, we have to make sure we resolve our sin because when we only relieve it and we don't deal with it, it only gets worse. So you say, Scott, okay, uh, then, then I guess we should confess. Yeah, you should confess, but you should confess for the right reasons. See, see, when your motive for confessing is just bringing some temporary relief, that's not a genuine confession. That's just the admitting, the acknowledging. No, the motive for confessing should be res- resolving it, dealing with it, addressing it. It'd be so much easier for me to just not mention what happened on Wednesday in Washington, D.C. It saved me some emails. It saved me some angst. It saved me some, some nervousness and probably some frustration down the road. But, but I feel like we have to deal with and face these things. And I recognize that there was something going off in me where I realized that I hadn't dealt with this and I hadn't addressed some of the attitudes, some of the thoughts in my own heart about people who don't agree with me and don't see eye to eye with me. I had to do some work even before I stepped out to deliver this message today. I had to repent of things. And I hope that we can begin to normalize repentance in our lives and in our church because repentance doesn't relieve guilt. No, what repentance does is it resolves it. It brings real and lasting change. In 1 John 1, 9, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when that, when that feeling comes and the temptation is, I just want to relieve that feeling, I hate that feeling, our, our temptation is to go the wrong way. And the work that God wants to do in our hearts is not relieving feelings we don't like. His goal, his work is to resolve that thing that he brought in our hearts to do what he wants to do. Here's the fifth mistake we make, the final one. 
we mislead ourselves by choosing concealment over confession. We mislead ourselves by choosing concealment over confession. If at any point this week, including today, you have felt the feeling of guilt and your temptation has been, I'm just going to conceal that, ignore it, hide what happened, hide how I feel. Because if I faced it, it would be worse. I want to encourage you that that is the farthest thing from the truth. Andy Stanley, whose book, Enemies of the Heart, inspired this series and whose framework we're following, he says the consequences of confession are far less severe than the consequences of concealment. See, when you conceal something, it makes it worse. I tell my kids on an almost daily basis, look, when you do something wrong, tell the truth. Because when you do something wrong and then you add a lie on top of it, you always make it worse. It's the cover-up, not the crime. It's often the bigger problem. And so if you're feeling the conviction of God, the, the guilt alarm that he's setting off within you about anything right now, if God's revealing things in you that need to change, the worst thing you could do is ignore it and conceal it. No, real change begins with confession. And that's what happens in the story of Zacchaeus. It says that Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, and he had, I'll pay back four times as much. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. In the story of Zacchaeus, confession is the first step towards change. Until you face something, it's never going to change. But again, in scripture, confession is the beginning of a process that does not just include acknowledging it. It means you are repenting of it. God is bringing restitution and, and ultimately restoration. And all throughout the scriptures, when confession happens, it's not in secret. I know we would love for secret confession to be the way of Jesus. I mean, it'd be so much easier. Just me and Jesus, I confess it. Nobody else knows Nobody else has to think less of me. Nobody else has to deal with it. But throughout the scriptures, confession is the path God calls us to do. And he calls us to do confession in the context of connection and community. In James 5, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. When we confess in the context of community, what God does is he uses confession to free us from guilt and shame. When you confess and stop concealing something, yeah, there's going to be consequences. But the consequences are far less than the consequences of concealment. And when you confess, you open the door for God to bring people around you to help you walk the path of repentance and change. You get people who will pray with you and walk with you and encourage you. All of that becomes possible when you stop walking the path of concealment and you begin walking the path of confession. The quote isn't the consequences of confession are nothing. <laughs> it's that the consequences of confession are far less than the consequences of concealment. 
And so I want to encourage you today that if God has been working in your heart, bringing a sense of conviction, bringing a sense of guilt, that is an alarm you've got to pay attention to. That is something God is trying to use to wake you up to the true condition of your heart so that he can bring change. So I want to guide us into some next steps this morning. And the first one, it's not surprising. Stop snoozing the alarm of unresolved guilt. When that feeling comes, don't hit the snooze, wake up and deal with it. It's never going to be easier to deal with than it is right now. Number two, begin by confessing your guilt to God and embracing his forgiveness. First John 1 says that when we confess, he's faithful, he's just, he's going to forgive you. You can be made right with God in a moment today, right now. If God is convicting you of guilt, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can confess it right now and restore that relationship with God. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus right now, you could be made right with God by confessing your sin and embracing his forgiveness and trusting in him. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can be made right with God in a moment. But let's be honest. You may not be made right with everybody else as quickly. It may take far longer and be far harder to experience forgiveness and restoration and even trust there. But it's worth pursuing. And so number three is to confess your guilt to the person you hurt and to practice repentance. This is where our discipline comes in. We mentioned last week we had a discipline. This week the discipline we're going to practice is the discipline of confession. I'm going to walk you through it quickly right here. The first step is I want you to imagine somebody that you would love for them to do what we've been talking about today. Somebody hurt you, somebody disappointed you, somebody betrayed you, and you would love it if they came in and confessed to you, repented. I want you to imagine the difference that would make in your life. What would change in you? Now I want you to imagine what would happen in the life of the person that God's been putting on your heart to confess to? What might change in them if you got honest and you confessed? Number two, I want you to get clear on what's the alarm got setting off in you. What's, what's God trying to show and reveal to you? What's that alarm? Okay. Number three, I want you to write a letter. Not type, not text, write. Yep, pen and paper, old school. Get those thoughts out. Name and identify what you've done, why it was wrong, how you hurt them. Don't over-explain it, excuse it, blame it. That's all the ways that you blow up and corrupt a confession. Own it. Face it. Then I want you to go and confess to that person. If you can go in person, go in person. And if you can't go in person, pick a, a more personable approach, a video call, a phone call. Or maybe even uh, send that letter. The worst thing you could do is send a text message or an email. That often comes across as cold and impersonal. It didn't cost you anything. But do your best to confess. And then walk in repentance. Can't guarantee that the person is going to receive your confession. You can't guarantee that they're going to believe it or embrace it right away. You can't guarantee they're going to thank you for it and appreciate it. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it because you want God to bring real and true change in you. And that's the first step in that process. You don't do because of the outcome. You do it out of obedience 
And who knows what God might do through an act of bold, courageous confession. Walking in repentance, asking God to bring real and true change. Now, I know I walked through those steps pretty quickly. They're available today in a guide on our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash heart. You can download it there, print it off, and take action this week.